Welcome to Pathways. I'm your host, Daniel McCormack, Head of Research at Macquarie Asset Management. Joining me today is David Doyle. David is our Head of Economics at Macquarie and covers the US and Canadian economies and is based in Toronto. Uh, we've had David on the podcast before, so it's great to have him back. David, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, great to be here. So today's topic, the, the debt ceiling, um, perhaps we could we could sort of start with, with the timeline and what the government options are, talk a bit about the politics of it, and then also talk about what the likely impact on, on markets is. So perhaps starting with that first one, and, and just, you know, for listeners not familiar with the jargon and some of the technical detail, we hear about this X date uh, in the news. Could, could you just tell listeners what exactly the X date is? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, to provide some context, we actually have to go back a, a few months. And a few months ago, the U.S., I think it was in, in January, actually reached its debt ceiling, its debt limit. Um, once that occurs, the Treasury has the ability to invoke what's called extraordinary measures. And extraordinary measures, I won't get into the, too much detail on this, but it involves effectively using liquid assets that the government has connected to pension funds um, to fund the deficit over a period uh, of, of, of potentially months. And, and that's what we're going through. That's what's occurring right now. Um, Treasury Secretary Yellen has suggested that the so-called X date, which is where those extraordinary measures get exhausted, there's a limit to them, um, is the 1st of June. But even she doesn't know for sure. Um, it's going to depend effectively on the timing of when the government receives cash from uh, from tax receipts and, and other sources and the timing of when outlays uh, occur. So there is some ambiguity on it. Um, she's indicated the 1st of June. Potentially, it could be later than that, I, I, I think. I might be surprised if it was uh, earlier than that. And, and what happens after the X date? So after the X date, if, if we do reach that X date, um, you're in a situation where the government can no longer fund all of its commitments. And, and so effectively, and it doesn't have access to these additional sources of cash through extraordinary measures anymore. So in that situation, it, 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 that would be um, something that we haven't confronted before, right? So extraordinary measures, what we're in through, what we're going through right now, what the US is going through right now, that's almost ordinary um, when it comes to these debt ceiling standoffs. You, we've seen them used repeatedly um, over the last several years. But going past the X date is, is something that has, we, hasn't been confronted before, hasn't occurred before. It's something that didn't even occur in the 2011 standoff that led um, S&P to downgrade um, the rating on, on U.S. debt from AAA to AA+. So, so that would, I, I think, is it's uncertain in terms of what would happen. Uh, we don't know. What the administration is arguing is it, that going past that X date might involve a potential de technical default on the U.S. debt, right? So they would be unable to make their interest payments. But, but so, so, is think, it the so, so sorry, David. I mean, is it the case that uh, sort of on if June 1 is the X date and, and understand there's some uncertainty about it, but is it the case that if June 1 is the X date on June 2, the U.S. defaults? Is that is that a lock or, or, is, or is there something else the government can do? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point, Daniel. It's not a lot. I mean, the, the administration is arguing that that could occur. But what I think would happen and what some other folks think could happen is 
the Treasury could invoke something called prioritization, in which, in which sense what they would be doing is they would make the payments on the interest to avoid that potentially catastrophic default event, but hold back on other payments or other outlays that they're obligated to make. So that would include things like Social Security, the payrolls of government workers, even military spending um, might, might be held back on in that situation. And so that becomes very difficult to juggle and, and very technical um, in nature. Um, so we don't want to go there because I suspect that if we, if we did reach that point where the Treasury was, was forced to prioritize, um, you'd actually have a significant market reaction. And, and it might not be as bad as a, as a technical default on U.S. debt, but certainly it would be something which would create a lot of uncertainty um, and be felt uh, and be felt broadly across financial markets and economies. And and if the government wasn't paying employees, the military, and, and providing social security checks and the like, so so would it then start to have a meaningful impact on economic growth because people have less income? I think very quickly it would. Um, it's both the in, the the income um, that that people wouldn't be receiving. Um, it's also just the the broader uncertainty it would create. Um, again, we haven't gone down that path or down that route before. Um, I, I suspect that that would be the tactic that they would deploy, though. And, and the reason for that is in 2011, um, some government documents suggest that that was the strategy that they were going to employ or going to deploy if we went past the X date. So there is some historical evidence that that would be um, that that could occur. But the current administration, again, is suggesting that they don't they don't believe that prioritization is necessarily a, a good option. So, David, how does the government decide what it what it chooses to pay and what it doesn't choose to pay? I mean, is that is that up to Biden or who decides that? Uh, it would be up to to Biden and the Treasury Secretary in those circumstances. Um, I, I believe that it's legal. It's legally questionable whether or not you know that would be a strategy that that would hold up in the courts in the longer term uh but i do suspect that if if they were if these individuals if biden and, and treasury secretary yellen were confronted with the circumstances um it's sort of like shoot first and, and ask questions later right and so i think that they would um they would make the payment on the debt to avoid that cat or that those payments of interest um and avoid such a catastrophic event and, and i think that you could get into a lot of detail on what should be prioritized and what shouldn't. But what we what we have to go off of is the plan that the government documents, you know, outlined in 2011. And, and that plan was there's only two tiers of prioritization. Tier one is interest on the debt and tier two is everything else. So that's simplistic and, and straightforward. So I suspect if we did end up in that scenario, you would probably see that play out. But, it, it you know, if we do and I don't think we will, I hope we don't. Um, but if we do end up in that situation, I suspect it wouldn't last very long because what would happen is you would end up with the market reaction that would create the impetus for both parties to reach the deal um, in order to raise the debt ceiling. It certainly makes sense to me that you would hold off on defaulting on the debt for as long as, as humanly possible. I, I just want to touch on before we get to sort of the market reaction and, and the politics of it, which is really interesting. I just wanted to touch on something that you said, where you said you think it's legally questionable. Could, could you just expand on that? What do you mean by that? 
Well, just there's some debate that's out there in terms of whether or not the government actually has the ability to, to prioritize. So um, there's some, and, and I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not familiar with the, the detailed legal arguments behind it, but I believe there are some people that you know, suggest that that would not be something that is that is an option for the government because um, the, it's not their role. The Congress hasn't afforded the executive with the authority to prioritize different payments. Um, and again, I, I suspect if you were in that, you know, in that moment, so F date plus one, um, you know, again, the, the, the government just would, or Treasury Secretary Yellen and President Biden will say, look, like, Maybe we're going to get overturned by the courts on this, but that's a problem for down the road. So we kick this problem down the road and we continue to make the interest payments on the debt. So this is the idea in in the U.S. that spending decisions reside with Congress, right? Not not with the administration, correct? Well, it's funny. It's, it's, what, what it is is, is there's two there's there's two paths in which the budget occurs, right? So the the actual budget was approved last September, right? For the current uh, or last fall for the, the the current pace of government spending and the current obligation. So Congress, now Congress hasn't, and it's not this Congress, it was the previous Congress, right? Because there was an election in November, but Congress has already approved the spending. All the debt ceiling does is it allows the government to fund the spending that's already approved. So there is that, there's almost like these parallel checks on the level of the debt, on the level of the spending. And, and so, you know, the the executive branch and Congress have historically worked together to ensure that you know, we, we haven't been in a situation where there's a conflict between obligations and, and raising the, the obligations that are owed and raising the debt ceiling. Got it. Let's let's turn to the politics of it and some of the potential market impact. And, you know, the interplay between those two things, I think, is is really interesting. From my perspective, I, I think, you know, the US is as polarised as as I can remember. So, you know, wonder, you know, A, do you agree with that? And, and B, does that mean that even if we think a default is unlikely or, you know, very, very significant market fallout is unlikely, we're likely to get much closer to that edge this time around than, than we ever have before or certainly that we have before in the last, you know, few decades. Uh, just because of the politics? So I, I broadly agree with that, um, that yes, it is significantly polarized. And there's, you know, there's a lot of evidence and data from academic sources that suggest that it's as polarized as it's been in, in over 100 years, if not longer, in terms of the, the two parties, the Republicans and the Democrats. I don't know if that necessarily means that we'll go as far as we did, say, or in 2011, right? In 2011, you basically took things right to the deadline. And then you had a very messy market reaction on the heels of that. I would suggest that potentially we go as far as that period. I'd be surprised if we went beyond it, um, if only because that would be unprecedented and there'd be a lot of risk associated with that. I add that the you know there is a, an option that the executive branch could deploy, and President Biden has spoken about this, which is to invoke the Fourteenth Amendment. And the Fourteenth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution suggests that, and don't quote me, but it says something along the lines of 
the validity of the U.S. debt should not be questioned, right? And I'm paraphrasing there. And so President Biden could use that to say, because of the 14th Amendment, I absolutely, I can raise the debt ceiling unilaterally. And so in the negotiation that's going on now with Congress, I think that that's being held out as a bit of a trump card to try and encourage the Republican side in the House and the Senate to come to an agreement or come to the table and, and reach a reasonable compromise. Um, so there is that incentive that's there for a deal. And, and there have been reports, you know, just in the last 24 hours that the talks are ongoing and that progress is being made uh, between the aides of Speaker McCarthy and the aides of, of President Biden. So there has been just recently, and then things could change by the time that uh, our, our listeners are hearing this, uh, but, but there does seem to be some, at least, the start of progress um, to, towards a potential landing spot for a deal. Fascinating. So, so does that mean? Would that mean that the debt ceiling is unconstitutional? Then that's what the proponents of this fourteenth, uh, the fourteenth amendment would, would argue is that even having it is unconstitutional. And there's just there's recently been a, a court filing that's occurred, um, and it's a, it's one of the lower courts in the U.S by the, a, a, a union of federal employees that are actually challenging Biden and, and Treasury Secretary Yellen to invoke the 14th Amendment by saying, you know, just even the threat of, um, of, of not raising the limit is unconstitutional. So that's another sort of wrinkle to this that um, could impact how things go over the next few weeks. So, David, there's this idea in markets that certainly by some analysts, that you need a certain amount of market pain to get participants to the table, right? As in, until we start to see some market damage or some economic damage occur, uh, the Republicans and the Democrats will hold the line. But once we get a certain amount, and who knows what what that is, um, then then they will come to the table. I mean, do, do you buy that? And, and if you do, you know, what level do you think we need to get to to sort of get an agreement? Yeah, so that's that's right, Dan. That's the way that I would be thinking about it. It's almost as though, and we've seen this in the past in these circumstances, it's when the market starts to pay attention and the market starts to become fearful of what could occur on the other side of the X date that we typically get uh, an, an agreement. And so I, I think as we approach that, that first of June date, or, or if there's a revision to it, whenever the, the X date is, um, markets, I suspect, will get more and more nervous. Um, and, and potentially you'll get this drawdown in, in, say, the equity market. And look, it, it could, you know, it could be anything. It's hard to know what exactly the, the degree or the magnitude of the sell off would need to be. But I'd say something like 5% um, would make sense as a baseline to me, maybe 10% if they're uh, if they're particularly obstinate um, but the, the extent of the drawdown I, I think will also depend on how the market's reacting like is it is it down two percent each day over five days would i think be treated differently than you know ten percent in, in one day for example what i'm curious you, you know you you're you follow the markets pretty closely and, and you're familiar with what's occurred in the past what's what's your take on that i guess i had numbers in my mind sort of similar uh, to what you had. I mean, I think, you know, I think if you had the S&P 500 down 
sort of 10% over the course of a week or something or a few days, that would be pretty motivating for people. You know, maybe five is not quite enough because, you know, maybe there's, and it just depends upon how stubborn people want to be and uh, how how sort of polarised things are or may even depend on the personal relationships um, between between the individuals in, in question. But um, but I would have thought 10% would be would be pretty motivating. I guess the other thing too to think about is, you know, what is the impact on on the US dollar and the bond market? Because I think also if the bond market started selling off and 10-year rates started rising, you know, the direct impact that that has on businesses and households through mortgage rates and, and borrowing rates, I think that could be pretty motivating as well. And I think if you, you know, if I don't know, if you saw 10-year yields go up by, you know, 20, 30, 40 basis points, I think that would get people moving as well. Um, did you have a view on the bond market at all and and, and what sort of levels you think would, would get people uh, to, to come together? Yeah, for me, I think the effects on the dollar and the bond market are ambiguous. Like it's hard to pinpoint, um, you know, what, what could happen. And the reason is, is that you have these offsetting impacts. So there's obviously a, a negative argument with regard to them when it comes to the U.S. as a global leader, U.S. institutions, um, the reputational damage that could that could occur, that would be negative for for the dollar and and could lead to higher bond yields. Um, the counter to that, though, is what we've seen historically is um, a risk off bid, and you know, oftentimes the United States, uh, both the the dollar and, and bonds, get a risk off bid. So, where you come out in terms of what happens with the dollar and, and bond yields, in my opinion, depends upon what you put more weight on. That that institutional reputational damage component or the risk off component. Um, so it, it is ambiguous. If, if I had to pick one, um, and I'm caveating this here, I, I'd go with what we've seen historically, which is that the dollar might strengthen and uh, and you'd actually see bond yields start to fall. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly true in in risk off periods that that the dollar strengthens and 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 bond yields fall. But that uh, you know, I I sort of tend to think that that's because you know, in times of trouble, everybody goes to the safest house, and the safest house at that point in time, or at any point in time in the recent past, has been the U.S. for very good reason. But is the U.S. the safest house when it's when it's defaulting on its debt, when you can no longer trust it uh, to pay its pay its obligations? I think yeah, it's, it's a bit of an open question to me. So I sort of tend to think that the dollar would come off. I, I tend to think that bond yields would sell off. So just U.S. assets in general would sell off, but. But but it would you know it it, it is interesting and I and I think um, uh, you know you can see it both both ways that's that's for sure. Perhaps perhaps um, the the last question, David. What would happen in the event of an actual default? Now, now I know you know from from what I'm hearing from you, you think that is that is unlikely, even very unlikely, because you know we'll get some we'll get some pain, um, you know, and, and depending, you know, we we don't, we don't know exactly how much it takes, but there'll be a level of pain at which a deal will get done. But however, let's just say there was an accident, um, just a mess up, you know, the US just runs out of cash, or you know, something comes out of left field, and Biden just says, "That's it, I've had enough. We'll, we'll just default. That's better than you know agreeing to the Republicans' demands or something." What do you think would happen? in that scenario. So a lot of economists say it would be an absolute disaster, right? There would just, markets would melt down. Um, you know, another take is that mar economists maybe just often overestimate 
um, the calamitous nature of these types of events and there's a bit of volatility for a while and the world adjusts and moves on. Where would you put yourself in terms of in terms of that spectrum? Yeah, I mean, I would I would say there's a broad range of possible outcomes. The you know the short answer is we don't know. We've never seen it before. It would be unprecedented, and certainly the catastrophe type scenarios that that some people have spoken about are possible. They're on the table at at that point in time, and so it, it's conceivable that we would you know end up in a, in a situation where you know, equity markets are down massively. And, and by that, I mean, you know, 20% or more. Um, U.S. assets, to your point, I think that, you know, when we were in our earlier, uh, what you mentioned earlier, maybe potentially U.S. assets sell off um, significantly than U.S. dollar is hurt materially. So that, I think, is a scenario that's on the table. But to your point, you know, we just we just don't know. It's possible that you know, that it's not as big of a deal as, as what we think, or, you know, it could be, and it's possible you know, markets only see limited amount of pain and then the deal is reached and then, you know, we're back to a, a situation of normalcy again. I, I think that, I think though, at least in the initial stages of it and advance to it, the uncertainty, you know, would create a lot of downward pressure on, on asset prices and a lot of downward pressure on risk appetite. Um, and even if it's just a tail risk, uh, the fact that we're talking about it, I, I think is, you know, is is quite extraordinary and, and, and just perhaps shows how polarized we are on, on, on politics and 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 um you know how how sort of volatile times we're living in at the moment. But fantastic, David. Um let's leave it there. Thanks very much for coming on today. Fascinating as always. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to discuss with you, Daniel. That does it for today's Pathways. If our discussion today led you to any questions, please reach out to your Macquarie representative or drop us an email at mampodcast at macquarie.com. We're always glad to have feedback on the show and respond to inquiries. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Until next time. This recording is intended for financial professionals and institutional investors only. This is not intended for use with the general public. The views expressed in this podcast represent those of the speaker and are subject to change. Nothing presented should be construed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or follow any investment technique or strategy and does not constitute advice, an advertisement, an invitation, a confirmation, an offer or a solicitation to engage in any investment activity or an offer of any banking or financial service. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. All examples herein are for illustrative purposes only, and there can be no assurance that any particular investment objective will be realized or any investment strategy seeking to achieve such objective will be successful. Past performance is not a reliable indication of future performance. Before acting on any information, consider the appropriateness of it with regard to your particular objectives, financial situation, and needs and seek advice. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to the accuracy or completeness of the information, opinions, and conclusions presented. In preparing this recording, reliance has been placed, without independent verification, on the accuracy and completeness of all information available from external sources. Macquarie Asset Management is the Asset Management Division of Macquarie Group. Macquarie Asset Management is a full-service asset manager offering a diverse range of products across public and private markets, 
including fixed income, equities, multi-asset solutions, private credit, infrastructure, renewables, natural assets, real estate, and asset finance. The public investments business is a part of Macquarie Asset Management and includes investment products and advisory services distributed and offered by and referred through affiliates, which include Delaware Distributors LP, a registered broker-dealer and member of the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and Macquarie Investment Management Business Trust, a Securities and Exchange Commission registered investment advisor. Investment advisory services are provided by a series of Macquarie Investment Management Business Trust. Macquarie Group refers to Macquarie Group Limited and its subsidiaries and affiliates worldwide. Delaware Funds by Macquarie refers to certain investment solutions that Macquarie Asset Management Public Investments distributes, offers, refers, or advises. Other than Macquarie Bank Limited, any Macquarie Group entity noted in this podcast is not an authorized deposit-taking institution for the purposes of the Banking Act 1959. The obligations of these other Macquarie Group entities do not represent deposits or other liabilities of Macquarie Bank. Macquarie Bank does not guarantee or otherwise provide assurance in respect of the obligations of these other Macquarie Group entities. In addition, If this podcast relates to an investment, the investor is subject to investment risk, including possible delays in repayment and loss of income and principal invested, and none of Macquarie Bank or any other Macquarie Group entity guarantees any particular rate of return on or the performance of the investment, nor do they guarantee repayment of capital in respect of the investment.